take uh, our, our Bibles and uh, open to Haggai, um, chapter 2. Haggai, chapter 2. The last time uh, we looked at this passage, uh, or rather this book, we talked about having the presence of someone in charge uh, and how that makes a big difference. Um, you remember the context of this is during... Uh, the time when the Israelites have returned from exile, they're beginning to rebuild the temple. God sends two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. The people uh, have been back in Jerusalem for some time, and uh, they had determined that, well, this is just not the right time to rebuild the temple, so they got busy rebuilding and repairing their own houses. And... Um, In the beginning of Haggai chapter 1, it speaks about how they are dealing with an economic crisis. They're dealing with uh, things like drought and bad crop conditions, things of that nature. And uh, essentially, they are the covenant curses that have come upon the people because they are not fully following after God's will. And Haggai encourages them to return to their, their focus. The, the reason God brought them back uh, to Israel was to reestablish uh, the worship of Jehovah. And uh, I guess it would help if you could see what I can see, wouldn't it? I'm, I'm just really, we're really struggling tonight. All right. Um, Haggai chapter 2, verse 10 Chapter 1 and then the beginning of chapter 2, Haggai has preached to the people that they need to uh, turn away from rebuilding their own houses, renew their focus on building God's house, and so they do that. They say, yes, we're, we're going to do that. We're going to follow the Lord's voice, and uh, they, they receive an encouraging message. Uh, they, uh, Haggai says to them uh, in chapter 1, verse 13, uh, the Lord's message that I am with you, declares the Lord, and they're encouraged by this, and they begin to engage. And then we come uh, to, to chapter 2 and verse 10. And this is an interesting passage of Scripture. Uh, as you read through, it seems to indicate that there's still some kind of problem going on. Uh, the people have expected that as they follow in obedience to God's will, that they will begin to experience God's blessing. But that doesn't seem to be happening. And so uh, we hear this message, this word uh, of the Lord from Haggai, uh, chapter 2, beginning with verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it, the food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, yes, it does become unclean. 
Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. Now, the implication of this message is that the people, though they have begun to walk in the direction of God's will, they are still experiencing the effects of some of those covenant curses, the blight, the mildew, the hail. And so Haggai is, is given this, this message, this kind of this word picture, and he does it in, in conjunction with the priests. He comes and he, and he asks them this, this series of questions about, uh, about clean and unclean meat and someone being defiled and all of this. And, and uh, it makes us wonder, well, like, what's, what's going on here? This is verses 12 and 13 of the text. If you'd actually do a background study on this passage and follow the cross-references, you will find yourself led to passages uh, in Numbers, uh, the book of Numbers, that have to do with ritual purity and what makes someone clean or unclean and what to do if they have become unclean. In other words, we're dealing with matters of purity, matters of purity. Perhaps an easier way for most of us to think about it is uh, we can either think about doing, uh, for us guys, it might be doing some kind of mechanics work or, uh, or yard work or something with a, with a nice clean pair of gloves and uh, there's something nice about a new clean pair of gloves. Uh, but if you do much hard work with those gloves, it doesn't take very long for those gloves to get dirty and stained and, and greasy. Um, the clean gloves never make your greasy car parts clean, do they? No, your clean gloves don't ever impart their cleanliness to that which is, which is dirty and, and greasy and defiled, but rather what is dirty and greasy will impart its dirtiness to the gloves, and the gloves get stained and, and, and filthy and dirty. If uh, you, you ladies or, or maybe some of the kids that live in my house, if you're stacking the dishes uh, you 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 want to make sure that you keep the 
dirty dishes separate from the clean dishes, right? Because if you stack the dirty and the clean dishes together, the clean dishes are never going to make the dirty dishes clean. Wouldn't that be nice? My kids ought to say amen. Yeah. That'd be nice uh, if you could just stack them all together and the cleanness of the clean dishes would impart their cleanliness to the dirty and they would all be clean. But it doesn't work that way. It works exactly the opposite way round. Whatever is dirty and defiled will spread its defilement so that everything that was at one time clean becomes stained and dirty and defiled. That's the way it works. Really what we're talking about here has to do with God's holiness. Now we're not going to give a full treatment of this issue here, but just this, just a, a few little ideas about God's holiness. Uh, God's holiness has to do uh, with His transcendence, has to do with His purity, His majesty, and above all with the, with the truth that He is utterly and completely unique. There is nothing like Him in this entire creation, in the entire universe. A comparison that we might make would be the sun in our solar system. The sun is good and and gives many benefits. In a lot of ways, it is transcendent in that it stands above and shines brightly uh, uh, over the rest of uh, what's in our solar system. And it's transcendence, or if, if you will excuse me for using this term, the holiness or the uniqueness of the sun causes the area around it to be holy as well. And the closer that something gets to the sun, the more impacted it will be by that holiness until it's actually dangerous to get too close to the sun. God's holiness is a similar way. It, 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 uh, it's a good illustration of God's holiness. Think uh, about some of the stories that we read in Scripture. For example, Moses and the burning bush. And, and uh, Moses is taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. And he sees this bush on fire. And he turns aside to see why it's burning and not consumed. And he hears the voice speaking to him out of the bush. Moses, don't come any closer. Don't get too close. And take your shoes off. Because the place where you are standing is holy ground. In other words, there was something about the holiness of God that... Moses couldn't get too close to. We read it more clearly in other stories after uh, the tabernacle had been constructed and dedicated and the glory of God, the holiness of God came down and filled that place. It filled that tent, that tabernacle, such that the priests who were intended to be ministering there were not able to go in to that place. 
if there's one thing that we ought to learn and understand as we read through the Old Testament, especially uh, the, the books, the first five books, and, and particularly books like Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, those books, one of the things that they are teaching us about is about God's holiness and how He can live amongst His people and how His people can safely come into His presence without being destroyed by coming into contact with God in His holiness. It's one of the things that God is teaching through the, what we know as the holiness code in the book of Leviticus and how there were certain animals that they couldn't eat and if they came into contact with a dead body, that made them unclean and they had to go th- through certain rituals to be purified before they could go into the proximity of the, of the temple where God's presence dwelled. And the idea, friends, is that we can't just come into God's presence any, any way or any time that we want to. I'll reference this passage again in just a few moments, but uh, the verse that I think of is the verse from Psalm 24, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? He that has clean hands and a pure heart. So when Haggai speaks to the people the message of the Lord and he uses this illustration of clean and unclean and, and uh, putting, the, putting the dirty dishes together with the clean dishes, uh, it's the same, same type of illustration. The clean don't ever impart their cleanliness to uh, what is dirty, but rather what is dirty imparts its defilement to what is clean. And Haggai says that it is this way with my people, uh, verse number 14, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and with every work of their hand, what they offer there is unclean. In other words, they it seems they have begun to do the will of the Lord. They have begun to, to move towards obedience. But apparently there is something about what they are doing or the way they are doing it that is, that is still bringing some defilement to the work of their hands. And so they are invited to consider in two places... Verse 15, now then consider from this day onward. And then verse 18, it says again, consider. It's interesting that God gives this message through Haggai and, and doesn't give a, uh, a real clear, detailed instruction of what the people are supposed to do about this issue. He simply says, consider. Verse 15 um, it could be a, a word of instruction to, to look backwards. Consider, look backwards, and that's exactly what he instructs them to do. Uh, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple, how did you fare? Then in verse 18, consider from this day onward. This, this one word of instruction is an invitation to compare, and uh, it is a word 
<clears throat> that, is, uh, that, that communicates a, a definite turning point or a transition. Young's literal translation uh, gives us this word consider. It says in verse 15, lay it to heart or set it to your heart. In other words, this is something that you need to think seriously about. And again, to take you back to this verse in Psalm 24, what God is communicating to his people is that through their, the, the defilement that is still in their hearts, they are, they are imparting their impurity, their defilement to the works of their hands. Their hopes of renewing and rebuilding the temple of the Lord and establishing temple worship again is not making their, uh, their works clean, but rather their defilement is making their work dirty. And the psalmist in Psalm 24 says that there are two parts that are necessary for the one that would enter to the sanctuary, that would ascend to the hill of the Lord. And as we mentioned a moment ago, it is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. I was thinking and praying about this, and um, it's not what I meant to do. There we go. Thinking about the implications of this passage and the implications for myself and what are some questions that I ought to be asking of myself and simply questions that I would invite you uh, to think about. So when we look at the people in Haggai, here they are. The people are back where they belong again. They're out of exile. They're back in Israel, the, the promised land. They are beginning to strive towards obedience, but there is still this impurity that needs dealing with in their hearts. And Haggai gives this illustration with the priests of asking what is clean and what is unclean, and he points out this truth that holy activity does not make people holy. Just the work of their hands Putting something clean with something dirty does not make that which is dirty clean. And as I look at this, I see I, I could be wrong, but I believe the people there that Haggai was speaking to were making the same mistake that the Israelites had been making all along. They were in pursuit of the blessings of God rather than in pursuit of God himself. And so all of their work, all of the works of their hands was tainted by self-interest. You see, friends, if there's one thing that characterizes the nature that we are born with that inclines us towards sin in the first place, it is this trademark characteristic of self-interest, selfishness. It is that which causes us to pursue the blessings of God rather than simply God himself. As we look at the scripture and ask, well, what does God want from his people? What is it that God wants? God wants more from his people than just simply obedience. 
If all God wanted from his people was obedience, he would have made or created just a race of machines or robots. God could have done that. He could have created people who would have mindlessly done his will without complaint or without argument. But that's not the kind of a race that God created. God created humanity with free will out of a desire to have relationship, loving relationship. We read these words in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. King of Egypt. What it is that God wants is loving relationship and loving fellowship with his people. It is something that goes beyond mere obedience. You see, God wants more than just our obedience. He wants our hearts to be fully and freely devoted to Him in total surrender and total consecration. I would direct your attention just a moment to Psalm 51. You remember the grievous sin of King David when he, he was in a place he shouldn't have been, looking in a direction he shouldn't have been looking. He allowed his eyes to linger longer than they ought to have been. You, you see, here's an interesting thing about that story. This is just a side note. If David would have been where he belonged, he would not have ever encountered that temptation to begin with. But because he was not leading his men in battle where he ought to have been, he exposed himself to temptation. And temptation brought forth such terrible sin where he broke so many, nearly all of the Ten Commandments. He, he lied, he committed adultery, he, uh, he committed murder, and, and just the list goes on. In fact, you can look through the Ten Commandments and look through this story, this part of David's life, and I believe you can find where he violated almost every single one of the Ten Commandments. But God, in his mercy, brought conviction, and David repented and David, in his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, it's interesting, he prays and he acknowledges more than just the actions that he committed, but he seeks for, for something that goes beyond forgiveness. He seeks for purity. Verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. In other words, he seems to be acknowledging this, this understanding that I need more than just right outward behavior. I need more than just forgiveness of the, of the wrongs that I have committed, but I need a, a, a deep 
inward heart cleansing. In verse 6, he says something interesting about what God wants from his people. He says, behold, you desire or you delight in truth, in the inward being. And the idea there has to do with inner reliability, inner reliability. In other words, God delights in people whose hearts are fixed on him and on doing his will and not constantly vacillating from one side to another. And this seems to be where the people of Israel were uh, in Haggai. They've, they've come back. Ezra's brought them back. Uh, they uh, are distracted from the work of building the temple. The foundation was laid, but then they began to experience problems and difficulty. And so they thought, well, maybe this is not the right time for us to rebuild the temple. So they begin rebuilding their own houses. And what is being described in verse 15 and 16 is still the covenant curses that you can read about in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28 talks about the covenant blessings for obedience and covenant curses for disobedience. And verse 16, Haggai says, How did you fare before one stone was placed upon another in the temple of the Lord? When one came to, the, to a, a heap of twenty, that is a heap of wheat, you looked to find twenty measures, but there were only ten. In other words, the, the harvest is not what it ought to be. The, the wine vat, you're expecting a, a certain measure to come out there, and it's, only, uh, it, it's, it's less than half of what you expect it to be. In verse 17, God speaks through the prophet and says, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. And the idea here is though they have begun working in God's direction and rebuilding the temple, there is still something that is not wholehearted about their efforts, and God is calling them. And simply because they are doing holy work, they're not going to have holy lives. There's only one way, friends, that holiness can take away impurity. It's not through the good things that we do when we consider ourselves to be doing holy work that our impurity will be taken away. There's only one way that impurity can be taken away, and that is through the divine supernatural touch of God and his hand upon our lives. Think about Jesus in his earthly ministry when those that were unclean, the the lepers, for example, because of their disease, they were forced to be outcast from society and they had to cover their mouths and and call out unclean, unclean. They couldn't come uh, uh, into close contact with people. Otherwise, their contamination would be spread to others. The only exception to that was when Jesus came on the scene and he welcomed the leper. And I I can't prove this, but I kind of believe he embraced the leper. I know he touched the leper. 
And rather than the contamination of the leprosy infecting Jesus, it worked just the opposite. The, the purity and the holiness of Jesus took away the filth, the contamination of the leprosy, and the leper was cleansed. <clears throat> I asked myself, in studying this passage, is there any area in my life where I'm at risk of being controlled by self-interest more than I am being controlled by God's will and my pursuit of God's will and God's spirit? I believe too many times Christians struggle like the Jews trying to rebuild the temple when there are let's just call it what I what I think it is it is it is the life of the person who is trying to please God they have perhaps repented and confessed of sin yet they still have something within them that's wrestling for control. And there's that tug of war with, with the flesh. Verse 18 of Haggai chapter 2, the, the prophet gives these words. Since, since this day, this particular day, consider from this day onward, and he, he writes it down. Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. And I believe that is a reference to the day that they turn with a whole heart to do God's will. Turning with a whole heart to do God's will. And as we close this evening, let's take just a moment to bow our hearts before the Lord and search our hearts. I'm asking myself, is there any area where I'm at risk of being controlled by self-interest rather than a desire to do fully God's will, no matter the price, no matter the cost? Am I more interested in the blessing of God than I am simply my relationship with God himself. Father, would you search our hearts tonight? And if there's anything in us that is more interested in the gifts that come from your hand than we are in simply knowing you and having your face to shine upon us, would you open our eyes to see that? Lord, would you cleanse our hearts from anything that might be impure or defiling or not like you? Lord, we want to be busy about our master's work. But Lord, we don't want anything to be wasted 
Lord, that there would be nothing that would reflect poorly on you or on your kingdom. One has slipped down to the altar